Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider how does an author transform an old family legend into a transfixing novel that spans continents and generations? The novel is China Room by Sanjeev Sahota. We got the idea for this episode because we kept seeing glowing reviews of it, saying, in essence, that it's an exquisitely written, sweeping family saga that's also a very manageable length. And to me, that is irresistible. Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) You don't need to say anything more. And it's primarily set on a remote farm in India. So what's not to like? Exactly. China Room was longlisted for the 2021 Booker Prize and a finalist for the American Library Association's Carnegie Medal. We're so delighted that Sanjeev agreed to come on the podcast and talk with us about the family stories that inspired the book and the experiences from his life that made their way into it. Sanjeev was named one of Granta's 20 Best of Young British Novelists of the Decade in 2013. In addition to China Room, he's the author of Ours Are the Streets, and The Year of the Runaways, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Dylan Thomas Prize, and was awarded a European Union Prize for Literature. Just a little bit more about China Room before we get started. It weaves together the stories of two family members separated by more than half a century. First, there's Meher, a young bride living on a farm in Punjab in 1929. She's trying to figure out which of three brothers is her new husband. Yeah, you heard that right. And that's the part that relates to the family legend. (laughs) And then there's Meher's great grandson, 70 years later, who travels from England to that same farm where he struggles to overcome a heroin addiction. So we started our conversation with Sanjeev by asking him to share with us the family history that inspired China Room. Here's what he said. There was a kind of a story and it's a a piece of family lore or legend that I've been hearing since I was quite a young boy or an adolescent and I'd hear this when I went to India which is a place I know very well and I've still got a large family there and I've been going annually since I was a child but it went that a great grandmother of mine was one of four young brides married to four brothers in a single ceremony and none of the four brides knew which brother it was they were married to um largely because they were kept sequestered from the men throughout the day. And there was a degree of having to be veiled as well. I should stress that how much of this story had been embellished over the decades, as family stories tend to be, I don't know. But the story was that it wasn't until a year later when they all saw which brother was holding which child that they finally worked out who was their husband but that sounds mm, I'm not sure how much sort of family license has gone into that that particular element of the story (laughs) but that was kind of like the the jokey story told with a great deal of levity down the years I suppose the more I sort of thought about it firstly it just sounded like just such a shocking premise it had kind of like a mythic kind of like a fairy tale quality to it these young brides in this room not knowing who their husband was. 
but also it just didn't seem like a quite a particularly humorous story to me it sounded just quite a dark and painful mm-hmm. story that's one of the things that perhaps attracted me to it so and I think I was just really taken by that that initial image of these young brides on this farm and that farm as I say is is a farm that still exists it's in Punjab in northwest India it's my family's farm I've spent you know many 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 days and weeks and weeks there and that room the china room as i call it in the novel though it's not called the china room in real life that room is is still there it's still got bars on it and it's used as it's now used as a grain store i mean it's not as it was in the novel in novel i've taken a little degree of license and fictionalizing that story but i suppose the existence of that room this story and this kind of this vague scandal of this um, another ancestor of mine around the same time being involved in the indian independence movement i think those three things Kind of the, the the seeds of of this novel. Were there other things that you knew about your great grandmother when she was young that helped to inform Mahar's story? I knew she she stayed in Punjab in the village pretty much all her life after she got married, and she only left Punjab once, and that was to come to England just a few months after I was born to see me. And that photo is in the book. She passed away a few months on from that photo, actually. So I'm quite lucky to have that photo as a kind of a um, memento of her. Yeah. I loved seeing that photo reproduced in the book as well. It was very mind blowing as a reader to think about this woman in the circumstances that you portrayed in 1920s rural India. And then to think of her kind of jet setting, you know, off to England to hold this very modern boy who you know, ends up playing a role as well in the book. I hear you saying now that she wasn't really jet-setting, but can you say a little about her circumstances in those early 1920s scenes? Yeah, so in the novel, she's she's 15. She's a new bride. She's come to this, this farm on the outskirts of this village. She's one of three new brides and she does form quite a sisterly relationship with her two sisters-in-law and there's three brothers and they're all sort of ruled by this quite tyrannical matriarch called called Mai and Meher in the novel her days are very much spent working you know doing that domestic kind of drudgery which I know women of the time did and certainly my great-grandmother would have done that she wouldn't have been more than 16 and she was married to one of several brothers and she was living on a farm and she would have been doing that kind of that milking kind of that domestic kind of um labor which all women of that time had to do and also just like Matt, her name was also changed after she got married no one knows what was the name that she was actually born with because as was often the case once girls got married as part of that claiming ownership thing that went on they were given their new name which was called their their real name You've also said something about mutual haunting going on between the two strands in the novel, Meher's 1920s story and her great-grandson's story. And that word mutual really caught me because, you know, we can see how the past haunts the future. But in, in talking about mutual haunting, are you saying that it works the other way too, that somehow the great-grandson's story is haunting the past in some way? I do think that in a society like India, which is so concerned with 
ideas of family and ideas of progeny and ideas of how the family name is going to carry on and lineage and heritage. And I think it's it's inevitable that people are always thinking about their um their children, their children's children, what's being passed down. I think it can be said that there is this reverb hmm. back from the great grandson. I think he is in the minds of Meher and some of the other characters that whatever they're going through isn't going to end here, it is going to live on in some way in their future offspring. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I love ideas about sort of the circularity of time rather than the linear concept of time. Yeah. I don't know if this is exactly what you were just saying, but made me think, you know, what happens to your great-grandchildren then um, affect in some way how you're remembered, right? Your reputation. It changes how you're seen, at least. Reputation is so sort of intrinsic to how, especially the characters in 1929 and even today in India and even just in the Indian diaspora around the world, reputation and status counts for so much. It's like people can never quite be in the present because they're always thinking about how things are going to look further down the line. I love this idea of the future haunting us, shaping our present and past. My worries about the future certainly affect what I choose to do now. And we say things like time will tell whether, for example, a particular president is considered great. But I I had never really isolated that way of thinking about time before. Our conversation with Sanjeev also got me thinking about the identity of a spouse. Oh, wait, say more about that. Yeah. yeah. So um, Meher's situation was extreme, right? She was heavily veiled and she was actually prevented from knowing which of the brothers was in fact her husband. She thought it was one and she was surprised to learn it was another. But we all experience this kind of thing to a certain extent if we stay married, I think. You know, Paul thought he was marrying a lawyer who could fall asleep any place, any time. Like sleeping was my superpower. And he ended up married to a children's book writer with a shoulder problem that keeps her up all night. Um, right. You know, I don't know. <laughs> You're whether... more than that, Julie. You. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I feel like right now. Let's yeah. put it that way. I'm so um, sorry. It's okay. Um, I don't know whether Sanjeev intended China Room to be kind of an allegory for, uh, you know, all marriage and like wondering who you're married to, but it has elements of that for me. Yeah. Well, please do not get me started on who Nick thought he was marrying all those years ago. I was 20 when we started dating. 20. Yeah. But to go back to what you were saying first, it does feel to me, the older I get, that time circles or maybe spirals around and around, sometimes forward, sometimes back. I don't know about you. I revisit parts of my life every time my children go through them. And Mm. then I carry that new version of my past with me until something triggers the next iteration. Yeah. Or I look ahead at my parents and at friends who are older than me, and I see myself where they are now. You know, I right. see future Eve where they are now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's definitely a sense for me of different worlds all coexisting. Ooh, and that, that notion of different worlds, that connects nicely to something that the author, Brian Washington, who was also a former Book Dreams guest, said about China Room. We talked with Sanjeev about what Brian had to say. 
In his blurb for the book, Brian Washington praises the way that you navigate, and I'm going to quote now, the worlds between where we believe we belong, where we end up, and the choices that we make to close the distance along the way. I think that's such an interesting way to think about the characters and storylines in the book. Do you have any thoughts about it? Other than I think I, you know, I love Brian Washington. (laughs) (laughs) He can blurb my book anytime. (laughs) What a great guy. What a great guy. Um, I think of that in terms of the, the narrator, the great grandson that where he, you know, he's born in England, he's grown up in the North of England. He feels like he should belong there, but of course he, he can't, you know, he's the only Brown person living in in his community in his very working class quite deindustrialized impoverished kind of like um neighborhood he he lives in there's this constant sort of exclusion that he feels as a result of his his race and his his class as well i think he's never felt like he can or is allowed to belong there and then he goes to india and he does start to feel that which is probably analogous to my relationship when i first started going to india as i did feel just this great pull of 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 acceptance, you know, to walk around a, a place where everyone, at least on the surface, looks looks like you, to not sort of always be, to not have your appearance always remarked upon, I think was just kind of an open and wonderful thing for the narrator to experience. And he does feel that sense of belonging in India. And of course, he meets various peak characters who kind of make him feel as if there's something special about this place that he's he's ended up, as well as aiding his recovery. It does seem to give him a sense of himself as well. So he thinks he should belong in England where he's grown up, but he doesn't. And he mm-hmm. he finds a sense of self and sense of belonging in in India. But of course, that can't last. You just have to go back to UK. And he has to navigate that gap. How does he come to some sort of reconciliation with who he is and where he is and where he has to go back to and how to make himself feel like he belongs there and by the end of the novel it's not quite clear that he's going to do that because he relapses twice recovers twice a clear indication that it's a constant battle for him this kind of sense of belonging and the, the suffering that kind of comes from not being allowed to belong that connects with my next question which is so you've said china room is about the need for connection and how connection along with ideas of home is actually a form of loss because you can never really hold on to it. You're always just waiting for it to break. It's always contingent. Mm. That is that is a heartbreaking view of connection and home. And I'm wondering if you think it's universally true or um, whether it's more true for some than for others. I think it is more true for some than for others. I think being allowed to belong in a place is actually... It's quite a privileged um, mm-hmm. thing. For example, like I didn't feel like I particularly belonged when I was growing up in in the UK, in the north of England, in the same kind of place that the narrator was growing up in, in the novel. And I think that's because I I was a brown working class kid growing up in a predominantly, all of pretty much um, exclusively white working class area and the difficulties that came with that. But I've noticed that the higher up I kind of like I go up the the class ladder, you know, the more middle class I seem to become, the more sense of belonging I do feel. What's interesting to me that my children who are growing up in a very different kind of place, they're growing up in a very middle class, quite a comfortable kind of like 
existence and mixing with all sorts of different kids from all sorts of different backgrounds in their school they seem to have a much more healthy relationship with England and with Englishness than I do my my children say um, that they're English you know when they're six years old eight years old and I can remember ever thinking or feeling or being able to sort of utter those that kind of sentiment when I was their age I think it's a great thing that they do but it's not lost to me that that's because they are in a much more privileged position than than I was. I don't think it's necessarily always to do with race either or class. When I look at India and look at um, kind of the what the people that get called low caste in India, the Dalits, for example, and I wonder what sense of belonging do they really have in India, a place where they're always seen as being on the absolute bottom of the rung. If you're on the bottom of the rung, then you have no say in your position in society. So in India, too, it feels like the people that are allowed to belong are people that are much more further up that social ladder. I want to ask a related question, which is, you've told this story about your young son. You said, I was telling him some Punjabi words, and he was like, why do I need to know this? And you said, because we hail from Punjab, and it would be good for you to know these things about where you're from and where your grandparents are from. And he said, yeah, dad, that's fine, but you do know I'm English, don't you? (laughs) You said I had to look away almost because it wasn't something you ever felt comfortable saying. Um, Is there, are there any circumstances under which you think you would become comfortable saying that? Yeah. I mean, I looked away when he said that because I was just so, I was so moved. Mm -hmm. I felt like, oh, oh God, you actually do feel you have a sense of home here, you know, which is wonderful. And I do think it's because um, it's a question of class and the question of social social mobility perhaps i lived in a shop my parents owned we were the only sort of brown family in that i was the only brown me myself and my brother were the only brown kids in our school and it was a difficult school i don't expect anyone to get the violins out here but it was just it was just a <laughs> mm-hmm. it was a challenging childhood the manufacturing industry had just been so decimated there was just a lot of unemployment a lot of betrayal kind of just hung in the air this, I, I just remember this abstract sense of betrayal continually in the air in the town where I grew up these former miners who'd had their livelihoods taken away from them and because the people that are to blame for that which were the the conservative government weren't around that psychological thing of displacement happens where you blame the other people that are near at hand who look different but my children the growing up in a city for one the growing up in a city that's very you know diverse and their friends and their people they come into contact with are, I guess, they're middle class. And so they're not coming into contact with people who see them or are, or are being told that they're at fault for their pain in any way, you know. So the people they meet are people that are doing quite well, too, have you know, done quite well in society. So I think it's, it's a class thing for me more than a race thing for why they're, my children are able to feel much more comfortably English. And as for myself, I feel more English now, more British now than I did when I was growing up. But I think that's because I'm, you know, I'm a middle class writer. I'm not, I'm not that young kid growing up in that kind of that difficult environment any longer. And I think it says a lot about the power of, of class and how much class still does rule the outcomes of people's lives in the society. And in the UK, at least, class isn't something we talk about anywhere near as much as we talk about other kinds of things, whether that's race or gender or sexuality class seems to be an identity that goes completely um, unremarked, which I think is is really disappointing because just judging from my own experience, it's the one factor that had the biggest impact on my life. 
Yeah. I remember when I, this is a silly story, but when I was in college, I made friends with a British guy and we were just getting to know each other. And he, at one point he said to me, so what, what's your class background? What kind of class is your family from? And I was so startled. And I went back and said to my roommates, you know, in England, they just talk about class. It's the most interesting. You know, like I just <laughs> extrapolated. All British people talk about class all the time. No, but they don't talk about it. They might not talk about it now even, but it's always there. It's always like certain assumptions unspoken that are constantly being made. Any conversation I have with anyone in the UK, there are certain assumptions about class immediately made just by the way they talk, the accent they talk in, and some questions about what school you went to. Sometimes, still sometimes that's what school I went to, as if I'd have gone to some big, posh, private school. So many of the institutional structures in the UK still uphold ideas of class, and it's just quite an insidious thing, especially because no one actually even talks about it. It's just kind of, it's just there ruling everyone's lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We read an article about you in The Guardian that says that you didn't read much growing up. You were fascinated by words on ads and packaging, but read your first four novels when you were 18. And I have to say, I'm deeply intrigued by this and <laughs> wondering, how did it come about that you didn't read a novel until after you were finished with um, secondary school? I was asked this when my first novel came out. And I said, I didn't, I didn't read a book till I was 18. And I said it in just kind of this offhand way. And then it's kind of, it's become, it's one of the things that's most sort of mentioned in any sort of profile of me. Yeah. And, well, uh, given your chosen profession, it's yeah, yeah. although going back to Brian Washington, Julie and I had the opportunity to interview him as well. And he also didn't read much growing up. He watched movies and he read cookbooks. Yeah. There should be a so PhD. maybe maybe we should stop reading all these books and we'd all be and other people, better people like novelists. Julie and me, we'd be better writers <laughs> if we stopped reading. Well, I think someone books. should do a PhD on comparing writers who were avid readers as children and writers who weren't, and see if that bears out in their actual adult fiction in any way. Mm -hmm. But no, it's true. I did. I didn't read them. Um, it wasn't a bookish household, and somehow I was in a particular year at school where they decided we weren't going to do any full length novels for our high school mm -hmm. we just did um kind of anthologies with kind of novel extracts in them i didn't continue with studying english after the age of 16 or my education in the humanities at all kind of ended there and then it was only when i was coming to india in summer 1999 when i was at, at the airport and i picked up midnight children by salman rushdie and started reading that on the plane and that was the first novel I read, I don't think I understood probably more than 5% of it because it's such a complex, complex novel, but I kept reading it. And I just remember I've got a very clear, vivid image of just feeling that this was a spell was being cast. Something was happening to me as I was reading it. I was, I was feeling different things I hadn't felt before. I had the sense that meaning was being created between me. I suppose I was as an adolescent, I was always looking for, for meaning, which is probably connected to ideas of belonging. I didn't really feel that I had a great sense of what was um, going on with me. And I suppose in reading fiction, the sense that meaning isn't something that is just handed to you, it's something that you create in that particular place between, between you and, and the book. And that felt just really, it was like a dam bursting open. And then I just knew I just didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop reading after that. That's such a beautiful thought for us to end on. Do you remember the first time you read a book and felt, you know, spells being cast or a dam bursting open and you didn't want to stop reading ever? For me, it was Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. 
about a Native American girl who's left stranded alone on an island for years and years. I remember I read it and I was just like, what? Everything about it was so different from my experience. I just, I wanted more and more and more. Yeah. I remember so clearly the ache of emerging from the world of a book where I had been so thoroughly transported that it felt like that was the place I lived, Mm -hmm. you know, and that sense of mourning when the book was over. I felt that way about Little Women. I felt that way about my side of the mountain, though I doubt those were the first times. I can't remember the first time. Did I ever tell you that I wrote, a, as a little girl, I wrote a letter to the author of My Side of the Mountain, and I got back a multiple-page onion skin paper typewritten letter. I'm sure that the author sent the same thing. Oh, to- oh my. <laughs> okay. You can't see me because we're not in the same room, but my yeah. mouth is hanging open so <laughs> wide, I'm almost drooling. It was crazy. It was single space and it was that fabulous, Wait, super thin. We're paper. talking about Jean Craighead George. Yes. <gasps> oh my God. That's so I love exciting. that so much. I know. I'm so glad we share that. Do you still yeah. have it? Can you show me? You know, I'm guessing that my mother threw it away. My mom turned my room into her closet. And in fairness, she did say to me, you know, you need to come home and go through all of your stuff. And I I didn't. So it's largely my fault. But I also have a love letter from someone in fourth grade that I'll never see again. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, let that be a lesson to our children who are exactly. Listen. <laughs> no longer leaving, meeting their rooms anymore. Right, right. But I have to say, getting lost in a book the way we're talking about is still one of my favorite feelings in the world, even though it doesn't happen nearly as much now that I'm an adult. Yeah. For me, that lost feeling tends to happen when I can really sink into a long, fabulous book. Mm. And I think I just need to prioritize those a little more than I do. Anyway, a goal to live by. Yes, (laughs) indeed. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find more about Sanjeev on the Penguin Random House website. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and